Hi, I'm Mike Yeagley. And I am Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. This is a podcast in which we talk about the documents and the people and the period of the 16th century of the Lutheran Reformation. So what we're doing is we're going through one document at a time. And, and then how it rolled out, if it's available, if it's easily accessible, how it rolled out over time to our modern day. So this is episode three. And in this discussion, we're looking at the 95 Theses. And the way we're looking at the 95 Theses in this episode is not as much the 95 Theses from 1517, but this episode focuses on a sermon that Martin Luther published in April 1518. He started writing in March of 1518. He didn't write it in Latin. It wasn't a big academic sermon. It was a sermon for the people so that the person on the street could start to know the theology and the issues that are involved in what is turning out to be a very big deal in Germany. Now, the the, the 15, 1517 in October on October 31st with the release of the 95 theses. What Luther did was he posted the 95 theses in for an academic discussion. He did not expect that academic discussion to be sent out to the world, really of the 15 1500s. And while it was an academic discussion, I think, though, that Martin Luther understood that it had a pastoral need for it to be spoken, that he was thinking about the people in Wittenberg and in Saxony that were right, that were buying indulgences and counting on these things that they're buying to replace the work of Christ. And he's like, we need to talk about this. Absolutely. He, he was very concerned about the, the pastoral component of it. But the specific 95 theses, if, if you take the time to go through and read those 95 theses, and you don't have to read through all 95, just pick it up and look at it, and you'll see that it is really not in a format that is very accessible. It's, it's just a bunch of sentences, a bunch of positions that he's putting out there that he's willing to discuss and defend. And this was the character of a university setting. Uh, statements would be made, and then there would be supporting um, arguments underneath that statement. And, and in the University of Wittenberg, the general practice was a professor to write uh, a, a set of theses, and then one of his students would be challenged with supporting, and, and maybe even other students would be challenged with pushing against that. And that experience of having conversation and debate pushed the people towards a refinement of their ideas. So the 95 Theses are a series of sentences that then would be talked about. Now, in this episode, uh, to help us kind of have some focus in our conversation, we're also just sitting around a table. We have some ideas. We have some supporting sentences. And most important, we're sharing in some time together. We and have... What, what is our beer today, Mike? Uh, today is Founders Brewing Company's All Day IPA Session Ale. So this is a, appropriate. It's a, a session we're having, I guess, a, a session yeah. ale. And the title of the beer is a session ale. Is it, it, yeah, you could have it for a well, whole the IP session. All, all Day IPA. Hopefully it's not feeling like it's going to be an all day discussion, but... We'll, we'll just have a quick session here and, and enjoy it. Now, this is one of my favorite beers, actually. This it, is one of my go-tos. I love the citrus flavor of it. Prost. Prost. And founders have really found, uh, with this beer, just a, an incredible marketplace. Oh, it's it's it, a really good beer. It's, it's a, a unique solid, flavor. solid beer. And it's in a can. 
So during the summer, you can take it on the boat um, or at the beach and not have to worry about broken glass. Oh, it's, it's a, you know, like I said, this is one of my go-tos. Uh, this is actually, we originally were going to have an alt beer because the last episode, we had a Kolsch 45, episode two. We had a Kolsch 45 and we wanted to have some sort of, have an alt beer. Kolsch is very popular in, uh, in, in Cologne, Cologne, Cologne yeah, and then the alt beer is from Dusseldorf and a little mutual town rivalry going between Dusseldorf and Cologne. But here's the reality. The first time we recorded this episode, we thought it was great. Then we asked someone else to listen to it, like, it's not so good. It was a train wreck. It was a train wreck. <laughs> um, and this is what we like. We like feedback on the ideas. We want to make the podcast better. Uh, we do reserve the right to ignore your suggestions. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we do appreciate them nonetheless. So, you know, please, feel free. Send us those emails. We, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you think. And this is a work in progress. We're willing to change it. We're willing to tweak it a little bit. Uh, with any ideas that are out there. So this, just to review where we are so far, the 95 Theses written to address the concerns of the peasants in Saxony who are traveling um, outside of the electoral Saxony to buy these in- indulgences that, that Tetzel is selling. The indulgences are being sold to support and pay back the debt that Albrecht of Mainz has. Uh, when he purchased the right to be the Archbishop of Mainz, it created an incredible amount of debt. He was given permission to pay back this debt by selling indulgences. Indulgences were just one way in, in scholastic theology uh, where a person could find their way back into a relationship with God. There are things that we do wrong. They have consequences. And what do you do when the consequences are bigger than what you can handle? Now, one of the things is, like Evan alluded to, where was that the, the real issue wasn't the the idea of indulgences. The idea of indulgences and the whole concept of indulgences really came out of something called scholastic theology. Also, you'll hear it talked about as Thomism. Thomism is a reference to Thomas Aquinas, and Thomism is a Let's say it's a version of scholastic theology. Scholastic theology is basically a marrying of Christian theology with uh, Aristotelian philosophy. Yeah, so Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, came back into Europe uh, in the early Middle Ages, interestingly through Arabic. Uh, Spain, the, the Arabic influence restored kind of the role of these Greek philosophers. As an engineer, thank God for Aristotle. I mean, my, my, you like job, geometry. You I like, like science. I like, I love, I love Aristotle. He's very, uh, my whole job is based on the learnings from Aristotle. So this is, this is, you know, although, and I, I think Luther is, pretty well aligned from my reading of Luther. Luther's aligned with what I'm thinking, which is that Aristotle is great. He has his place. But Aristotle is insufficient to understand God. And it's human reason. Human reason cannot unlock the secrets of God. If human reason could unlock the secrets of God, we wouldn't need Jesus. We wouldn't need the forgiveness of sins. We could just reason our way into it. So... 95 Theses, on one respect, is addressing a theological issue. But I think that it took off. It, it was like a, an amazing spread of ideas and hope in Europe because people understood the concrete issue that the 95 Theses was addressing. And that is, how do you know 
that you are saved. Now, the interesting thing is that Luther had a broadside against scholastic theology in September of 2017. Not 2017. (laughs) Right. Uh, 1517. He he had a broadside against scholastic theology in September. Now, remember, the 95 Theses were released in October. So a month previously, uh, Luther had released something, a 97 Theses against scholastic theology, and that just got a big yawn. People really saw that as just a bunch of academics talking to one another. They probably didn't even see it. No one even noticed it. He sent it actually to, uh, I think, Johann Eck, a character that we will learn about more. He was a, Johann Eck at this point was friendly with Luther. They were drinking buddies, or at least they both enjoyed beer. And they, they really could, they were two giants of that era. And they just, they, you know, he sent it, Luther sent the 97 theses against scholastic theology to Eck, along with other leaders in the, in academic thought. He got no response. Nobody was interested in discussing it. But when he, when Luther released the 95 theses a little bit more than a month later, wow, he got a real response because now he was talking about where the rubber hits the road. I wonder if some of it was that scholastic theology, those 97 theses, was about ideas, while the 95 theses also touched the wallet. Yeah. And I wonder if there is going to be more people that listen when they realize that it may change how they spend their money. That's that's a real, real... We don't want to say what is not there we want to sort of stick to what the what the the, what's in the writings of the period and so we want to be careful here but you can't help but be suspicious of the motives of some of the people when just a little bit more than a month earlier really a more precise attack on on scholastic theology theology was was sent out there and it got no response. Six weeks later, seven weeks later, you have this discussion on stuff that's going to on indulgences, which hits the hits the pocketbook. And indulgences had been around for a while, but now they're being attached to you can purchase them, and they're not just rewarded for something you've done, like go to a p- specific church or view a specific relic. Now someone can buy it. Right. And, and so we're looking at that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on. Because the 95 Theses, um, these sentences, Luther puts them out. They're published 1517. Within like even eight days, they're spreading throughout Germany and around Europe because they're being translated. The printing press, it's amazing stuff. But there's probably still people that are the, the common person on the street isn't quite connecting this to their own life. But there is a growing debate. There's a growing controversy. So Luther in 1518, March of 1518, he writes a sermon on indulgence and grace. Now, one of the problems with this, and you might have mentioned this already once, but this is not easily accessible. The sermon on indulgence and grace uh, of 1518 is not easily accessible in English. The only place that we were able to find it was Kurt Allen's um, book called 
uh, Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Which is a great book that introduces the, the resources around the 95 Theses as letters that's written, as sermons that's written. It, it writes about the reactions of people. It's not a, a big book. Uh, Kurt Allen's uh, look at Martin Luther's 95 Theses is a great uh, publication with resource of documents, the the real stuff. You don't have a bunch of historians from the 20th century telling you what it says. You can read the documents themselves. Right. And so what he did was he went through and and dug through all of Luther's writings. And any time that Luther discusses the 95 theses, he puts it in his book. So this is like the book, the Kurt Allen's book is probably about 20% Kurt Allen and about 80% Martin Luther. Yeah. Right? So it's a great resource if you're interested in reading more about the 95 Theses without a bunch of filters and lenses that other people are placing in front of you. You just want to look at the documents. It's a good book. This sermon, 1518, one notable thing about it is when it was published, it was published in German. Now, that was very unusual for the era, really, because sermons, and actually, this is a good question for you. I've never, uh, the sermons in that era were written primarily for the pastorate. Right. I mean, it was the, the, the sermons were not written for the common man. The, the, the pastors would have a book of sermons that were written by this guy in Erfurt, this guy in Berlin, this guy. And then they would just sort of read those sermons to their church. They, the pastors back in those days weren't really... the publishing of sermons. It was not intended usually for the people in the pew to read. It was intended for the preachers to be able to enrich their own ability to preach. And Mary Jane Hemig has written some wonderful things about the spread of the Reformation is largely through the publication of Martin Luther's sermons. And as Martin Luther's sermons were placed in the hands of preachers, and preachers found the ability to preach both law and gospel, Reformation spread further than what Martin Luther as a person could spread, his words spread it. And it wasn't because people read large academic books he, he wrote. They would read a publication that would have a bunch of sermons for a time period in the church year. And they would read those and then they'd start preaching in that fashion. Sometimes they may read directly that sermon, but often Luther would send these sermons out, not so that they would be read directly, but that they could give someone a model a shape, an example for their own evangelical preaching. They're preaching of the good news of Jesus. Now, because of the interest in the 95 Theses, at least we believe that the this specific sermon on the on the sermon on indulgence and grace which was specifically targeted to translating the 95 Theses into the common vernacular got more widely read than just among the pastorate. And so instead of being written in Latin, which was kind of that academic language of the community of Europe, it was written in German. And the intention that Martin Luther had was to essentially bypass the filters that um, Catholic churches might be placing to the people in the pew and to just get the message right to them. Instead of trusting the media to say what the 95 Theses are about, uh, Luther is getting it right in the hands of the people. Now, the, when I, I took the time to read through Luther's in, a sermon on indulgence and grace, and I, I tried to break it down rather than go through in this podcast to talk about, okay, section, you know, the first one says this, second one says that, third one says this. I thought, you know, well, let's put it into like categories. And, and what I saw was basically the sermon on indulgence and grace has three sections to it. 
the the first section seems to be really a discussion on the history of indulgences right it's sort of um it's a review of, of what the scholastic penance he talks about contrition he talks about confession he talks about satisfaction he, and then then he talks about how indulgences grew from a good work in themselves as where you could purchase a good work that was going to do you some benefit in the afterlife or or even in the in this temporal world so there was there was this 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 discussion on the history the first five i think uh really seemed to be the more of a discussion on for the common people on indulgences themselves i see those first five major uh, st- statements that he makes as prelude yeah as kind of the the montage of how did we get to this point so far that we have a system where a person can uh be sorrowful for their sin confess their sin and then be given works of satisfaction to do to demonstrate the genuineness of their contrition uh that word contrition just means sorrow for sin that sadness we have that we've sinned an indulgence was given so that a person uh could find a relief from their satisfaction. It, now, an indulgence wasn't supposed to make a difference with your contrition or your confession, but just if the satisfaction that you are given to demonstrate the genuineness of your sorryness, your sorrowfulness, could be, if that was just too much, if the satisfaction you were given was too great, this would help ease the burden. Now, one of the things that was unique about the, this whole era really came about within, I think, roughly about within the 100 years of of Luther, uh, prior to Luther, there was this introduction of the idea of attrition. And actually, I think the idea of attrition versus contrition is valuable even today in our discussions on on penance, on, on... on what it, what it means to be sorry for our sin. Yeah, one thing is to be sorry that I'm a sinner, and one is afraid of God. Right. And so contrition, contrition is to be sorry that you are a sinner out of love for God. That, you know, God has done all these great things for us, and we have betrayed him by, by, by sin, through sin. And then attrition is when we look at Oh, gee, you know, God's going to get me. The, 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 I'm going to get hit with a thunderbolt. I'm, you know, the fires of hell are lapping at my feet. That kind of thing. That is attrition. And at one time, the, the whole idea of Catholic, Roman Catholic theology prior to the separation of these, they lean, they really did try to encourage, at least what, what I've read from Luther is they tried to encourage contrition. But there was this change where they introduced the idea of attrition, where you're out of fear of God, out of fear of retribution, and that was now okay. And that changes the emphasis of preaching. Um, if no longer confession comes out of a love for God, but out of a fear for God, then I may not talk about how much God loves you. I will focus more on how much judgment God is bringing against you and, and just make you so incredibly fearful of God that you have nothing to do but confess your sins. And this is one of the big things that Luther, as as I read through Luther, and I'm trying to... He seems very interested 
in bringing contrition back to the forefront. He cares about people. He cares about the people. And he wants them to know God through the love of God. Right. Now, he will... One difference you talk about is saying I'm sorry because I love God. And he even moves that further and saying, saying you're sorry because you know God loves you. And that's even more of a move that he's going to make. That's correct. So we've got this discussion at the beginning. The prelude in the sermon is about just a summary of penance, uh, how you are sorry for your sins, you confess your sins, and you receive satisfaction. But then it moves further into a discussion of the role of suffering in penance. And that's what we started to talk about is, is my suffering uh, that's due to sin, will it draw me towards God? Or does the the suffering I experience exhibit God's anger and wrath? And what? how does the law help me understand what God wants from me? You know, one of the great quotes I liked from the sermon on indulgence and grace was where Luther says, For indulgence is nothing else, cannot be anything else, than a release from good works and wholesome suffering, which men should rather welcome than avoid. So I think there he really captures his concern with when, when we, and, and this we'll get into more with the Heidelberg disputation, this idea of contrition and suffering and the meaning of suffering and all of that is he's, he's, it's under the surface now. It's captured in the sentence. But yeah. with the Heidelberg disputation, we really dive into this idea of suffering. And what he sees here is that what, what the, the whole idea of indulgences is, is trying to sidestep the, the, we'll call it quote unquote righteous suffering, the wholesome suffering. He uses the term wholesome suffering, which is very, very foreign to at least my 21st century years. So Mike, if you want to avoid suffering, in 16th century, before the Reformation takes place, we're 1517, 1518, and you want to avoid suffering. How do you do that? I avoid the plague. You avoid the plague. <laughs> yeah, you leave town. That's another way you avoid suffering. I, 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 more, you know, more seriously, the, what, what I would do, is, I think the whole idea here is to avoid suffering. You know, pull out my wallet, buy an indulgence. If God is the core, if God... If the wrath of God is the source of my suffering, suffering, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to go, I'm going to pull out my wallet. I'm going to pay off the, pay off the big man, buy an indulgence. And then life should get easier. And then hey, hey, I'm, I'm good. Of I'm course. Good. Now, if I pay off the big man, I, I buy that indulgence and I'm expecting my suffering to go away. And, and tomorrow is as hard as yesterday. Maybe I need to buy another one. Maybe I need to buy another one. I didn't buy enough, or I didn't buy with a genuine heart. Um, now, this whole question of how do I get out from under suffering, and then Luther just completely pulls that whole argument of getting away from suffering away and says, let's not try to get away from suffering. Let's see suffering as an opportunity to see what Christ has done for us. Now, this is... I think the the episode is going to be episode five, so it's a, it's a couple episodes down the road. But this whole idea, we'll get deep into this idea of wholesome suffering at that point, because that is really what at this point, you know, it, it may sound a little confusing to folks, and and I I guarantee it probably sounded confusing to the people who were sitting in the pews when Luther said this 
He said, you know, you're going, you're trying to avoid wholesome suffering, but he doesn't really talk about what wholesome suffering is. At least I didn't see it there. So that helps us see that, uh, 1518, the spring of 1518, uh, is this sermon. And then it's going to be the fall of 1518 that we've got the Heidelberg Disputation. So this whole time period, you can just see these ingredients brew around. So the danger of indulgence and their limitations. That's the third, now that's the third category. Yeah. So now we're moving further in the sermon. Yep. The, the, the sermon basically ends. So the middle section is, is sort of the first five is a, a discussion on indulgences. The middle section is about suffering and that sort of wholesome suffering, this sort of thing. And then it sort of bleeds in. There's not like a clear point where you can say, okay, it stops here with that part and it starts there with the next part. But the next part, it seems to really get into the problems with indulgences. Mm -hmm. Now, so a problem with indulgence is that it takes the need of Jesus out of the equation. I don't need the work of Jesus. I just need to buy this indulgence. And it, the role of Christ's forgiveness as being perfect and complete is diminished. Also, one of the problems Luther has, and he, he hammers on this over and over and over again in this period, Luther in 1518 is hammering over and over again on the problem with that this is sidestepping good works. That, that this gets us, you know, now I've bought my indulgence, I've whipped up my wallet, I paid, I got my indulgence. I'm good. Now I don't have to do anything good for the neighbor. And I wonder if even today that's how somebody might react to going to church on Sunday morning. They go through this effort of showing up. They sit in the pew. They listen to the sermon. They they see that offering plate go by. They put some money in it. Now they can go back to cheating their neighbor on Monday. (laughs) And even that notion of whether it's I did this, so now I have permission to do whatever I want. That's the same danger of an indulgence. So if if you've ever got frustrated with the hypocrisy of someone who says they believe in Jesus, but you see them doing these scoundrel, um, these activities of a scoundrel, you say, how can they do one and and still do this other? It's a lack of unity of body and soul together. And the indulgence just really put that to the surface, that if a person buys this indulgence, then they don't need to worry about caring for their neighbor. Right. Right. Now, one of the things that we have, uh, you know, one of the, um, another quote from Luther here is indulgences are allowed for the sake of imperfect and lazy Christians who refuse to be bold and good works. That's, that's, he, yeah, if you want to be lazy and if you don't want to be bold in your good works and you just want to let people suffer in their poverty and their hunger, uh, and you want to just see the world continue to fall apart, but feel okay about yourself. Yeah, because I paid my, I, I paid, yeah. I, I paid off, and I, it really is almost like a bribe. That's yeah. that's what the the what the the picture Luther is painting here of indulgences, and what he saw. I shouldn't say the picture he's painting. It's really the way he saw indulgences working with his his congregation with, as a pastor. Watching the way his congregation treated indulgences, he saw that they were treating indulgences like bribing God. Now, to contrast an indulgence with the, the what he would hope would happen with the love of Jesus, let's set up what happens. You buy an indulgence and you are released from an obligation to do good works and you can go, know that you can just continue living the way you were because your eternity is paid for because you have this indulgence. Right. That's the, that's, that's bad. That's bad. That's bad. Now what Jesus uh, offers us instead is that I love you and I care for you and I know you are a sinner 
and I know you've done wrong, but trust not in your own works, but trust in my righteousness. And as I hear that promise of the love of Jesus, I now am inspired to go and love others. Now, I want to be fair to the 16th century, 1500s Catholic Church. And this is one of the, as Lutherans, it's very, you know, we have a tough time with this, but I recognize, and I think Evan's with me here, that we recognize that that there are non-Lutherans listening. There are Catholics listening to this. And and we want to be fair in, in the whole idea of indulgences and what they're trying to do with these indulgences. So there's a right? positive way to maybe look at an indulgence, and that is to help give direction to someone who is seeking, what good work should I do? We're not co- talking about the indulgences that you can buy. I mean, there's just a complete corruption with an indulgence when you can purchase it. But indulgences that were given because a person had uh, visited the poor or said prayers for someone or had done acts of mercy for another, you receive an indulgence in response for the good works that you did. You could see a positive way of viewing those indulgences. It's like an assurance. It's like, that's the way. And as we go forward with this, what we're going to see is that the Catholic Church, uh, the, the, the people who are arguing on the side of the Catholic Church, they're going to be looking at it like this is a good thing. It you know, is encouraging good works. It's, it's a guide for what good works. If you want to know what good works to do, look at which works have an indulgence attached to them. And those are pretty good works to do. But, obviously, Luther had a problem with that view of things. We have a problem with that view of things. But we try to look at the positive side, put well, the best construction <laughs> on it. Well, and and also, one of the things that's, I think, really important in this discussion, in any discussion, is to not create straw men. Yeah. To not create this, when I say a straw man, for those of you who, that maybe that might be a term that's old, but the, the idea of a straw man is you create something that doesn't exist, and then you tear it apart. And and so... And then you never really talk about the real issue that is confronting people. You talk about this pretend thing, and then make it sound like you won your argument because you tore down this pretend thing. Right, and we don't want to do that. There are real issues that that Luther was addressing and specifically scholastic theology and to focus too much and Luther spends a lot of time trying to not focus too much on indulgences he tries comp- continually to move past indulgences into the bigger issues that the Catholic Roman Catholic Church of the 1500s had really pretty quickly with the Heidelberg disputation and and so that's something that you know, there are real issues that need to be discussed and it doesn't make sense to create straw men that we're going to tear apart at this point. So let's place the indulgence back into the flow of how someone knew that their sins were forgiven. So scholastic theology had three parts to confession and absolution, that sacrament of penance. The first one was you're sorry for your sins. Contrition. Contrition. The second one is you confess what you have done to a priest. It has to be verbal. You have to physically say it to a priest. So it's, yeah. Confession is a physical saying what you've done wrong to a priest. And the third part was to receive from the priest an assignment, works of satisfaction. And, and the the works of satisfaction um, were given to you so that you could show the earnestness, the genuineness, the the reality that this confession is not just something you're doing as a show, but you really mean it. 
Now, indulgences were meant to bring relief from the onerous amounts of satisfaction that a person would have to do. I mean, consider that the works of satisfaction someone would be given to do were greater than what they could do in a lifetime. And when they were greater what you could do in a lifetime, you'd have to do them in purgatory. And so indulgences would help bring relief, not just from tomorrow, but from the pains and sufferings you might experience for a long time in purgatory. Or maybe not just you, but you could buy them from someone else who you think might be suffering. Now this is uh, getting into, and you can see, hopefully you're beginning to see how scholastic theology, using logic, human logic, to use human logic to unlock the secrets of God, what they did was they came up with these ideas on, okay, if you did, if you lied to your neighbor, if you had adultery, if you, then you've got to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, Y. And it went on and on. And there were these, you know, these are acts of satisfaction, these things that you had to do. And you could see how this, the, 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 what scholastic theology did was it created an incredible burden on the individual. And now, there so, was still a place for Christ. They would say that Christ would take care of your eternal punishment, but this was the temporal punishment. Right. And this contrast of uh, that your eternal life is secure by Christ, but there is, in this world, a punishment you still have to do. There's a consequence. So here's something that Luther said in his sermon. It's the 13th point he makes. He said, It is a grievous error for anyone to think that he can make satisfaction for his own sins. God always forgives them out of his priceless grace and demands nothing more than a good life thereafter. This is that idea that Luther has that an indulgence weakens the confidence we have in the work that Jesus has done and makes it sound like we have to do something with besides Jesus. It's almost like Jesus plus this. And Luther's like, anytime you add something to Jesus, you weaken the work that Jesus did. That's basically getting into the what Christ's proclamation to the thief on the cross is. You know, the thief on the cross had very little time to do any works of satisfaction, but Christ tells him, you know, you can be in today, you will be with me in heaven. So this is, you know, Luther has biblical background for what he's saying. He's taken this, this, this swipe at scholastic theology and he's specifically, and we'll see this in a later episode, he specifically ties everything to, to, to the Bible. And, and he's constantly going back to biblical writings. And when he quotes the Bible, he'll quote it so many times to support his position, to show that he's not finding just one passage that supports his position, but that the entirety of Scripture is pointing to the work of Jesus as sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. One so, of, go, go one, on. One of the things that I thought was really interesting as I've dug into the history of the Reformation was some of Luther's greatest adversaries would say, you know, I don't want to be too hard on Luther because I might be going against God himself because Luther grounds everything he says in the Bible. And I don't want, I want to be very, very careful here. So there was a recognition and this is, as Luther says, as he, as this goes on is that um, one man standing with the word of God can, can overcome even the Pope. But this is, maybe I'm getting ahead of the story, but this is sort of, this is the beginning of it, where he really does ground everything he says in the Bible, and it rolls out over time. Let's look at some of the effects that happened with the 95 Theses now. So Tetzel was the guy that was selling the 95 Theses, and there is, uh, you know, not much dispute. 
he probably exaggerated too much what he was doing with indulgences to the point that even people who would like to defend indulgences became uncomfortable with what Tetzel was offering. Now, one of the things that's sort of interesting, I did some research on the Catholic view on Tetzel to try and understand where they are. And they said, yeah, he overstepped on the idea of indulgences and the power of indulgences in purgatory, but quote unquote, there's no, no record or there's no data that says that he overstepped anywhere else. And they basically say that all the things that Luther brings up really never happened. Now, Luther, the, what's interesting here is that what Luther does is he never says that, he doesn't say that Tetzel said this. He says that Whatever whatever Tetzel said, nobody really knows because nobody really recorded it word for word. But he says, all I know is I've got lots of congregants coming back and they're telling me what they heard. And that's really, in my mind, just as damning. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's possible for us to speak speak the truth. Speak the truth, speak the truth, but in such a way that we're very misleading and the people who hear it hear something completely different than what we said. And it's at the very least, that's what Tetzel was doing. We do have to be conscious. I could have as much, uh, uh, I could have a great ability to defend whatever I say and say great things about what I've said. And they're just awesome things that I've said. But I always have to consider what did people hear? And that's the danger with Tetzel. Maybe he can defend himself. But I don't think he can defend what people were hearing because of how people were coming back to Wittenberg. Let's talk about some more things that happened with Tetzel. Uh, Tetzel was attacked by Karl von Melitz in, John, in January 1519. And that attack, it, it broke his spirit. Luther wrote to Tetzel to try to console him, say that the agitation was not that of Tetzel's creation, but that the child had an entirely different father. The conflict that is going on um, in the church that is uh, starting to bring fracture to the church. Luther wants to say, Tetzel, this isn't your fault. This fracture that is happening in the church has a different father and than that, you. And that father is scholastic theology. That's, that is where, where Luther has his sights. He doesn't say it, but it's pretty easy to see. That's what Luther is saying is that all Tetzel was doing was was really functioning according to the the mores of scholastic theology, and Luther is saying, you know, you you are a small bit player in this thing. The big problem is scholastic theology, and don't don't feel too too bad about that. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'm not sure if the second take on this episode is that much different than the first. <laughs> I uh, think it was. I think it, the, the first one was a total train wreck, and, and I'm hoping this is maybe, hopefully, a little less than a car wreck. But we'll 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 go with it. This is. I, I hope this is the, turned out better. So let's uh, let's say thanks to our sound guy, Josh. We appreciate Josh and the the magic he works with our interruptions and our. And our faults. Uh, we also give thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church um, and the support of that congregation that provides uh, both me as a pastor and, and to Mike uh, there that uh, we know that any engagement we're doing in theology, we're doing in the context of a community of people who care for us and support us. And, and together we're reading God's word and seeing where it leads us. Uh, I also want to recognize once again, Kurt Allen's Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Excellent book. Really got a lot out of that. Uh, just to read Luther's actual words was very helpful. And Luther writes in very clear, clear ways. And, and also in that, there's a lot of discussion from the table talk 
Table talk is where students of Luther, friends of Luther, write down what he says and record it when they're sitting around having beer. I found the different letters and things like that to really help bring some life to the 95 Theses. Um, if you've had opportunity to read the 95 Theses and you got through all 95 and understood what each one was saying just by the 95 Theses, not looking at the Sermon on Indulgence or Grace and not looking at the explanations of the 95 Theses. You're a better man than me. Better than me as well. I so appreciated the letters that just gave a human character to things. Um, you can contact us and we want this. We want feedback. Graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can catch us at the website, graceontap-podcast.com. Have a great day. Prost. Prost. Prost.